That's yeah, <laughs> I, I generally hire muggles as assistants. It's right. very interesting. All my assistants in the last few years, they've all been muggles. They've all come from non-musical families. Well, hello and welcome to this next episode of the Upbow Download. My name is Luke Carbon. My name is Kenny Kevill. And today we're going to talk about the calling, the idea that somehow we're drawn to a profession or we have some sort of eureka moment where it gives us some clarity of meaning that we're doing what we were born to be doing. This is definitely a pertinent subject for a place such as ANM, the Australian National Academy of Music, because all of us are here in this sort of uh, small, well, kind of niche um part of music i mean there's so much other music out there besides playing an orchestra and chamber music and and solo uh and especially on acoustic instruments as we all are because a lot of music is just done today on computers and electric guitars and basses and 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 singing yeah absolutely like what we are doing is becoming increasingly like a, a niche industry and so in order to do it well we feel that you've got to really commit your entire life to it and being the way the things are it seems that everything is getting very very competitive in this industry of uh classical quote-unquote music mm. you know no, absolutely and it's interesting like um it's been a busy couple of weeks here at anim a bunch of us have just returned from bifem the bendigo international festival of exploratory music which is a new music um festival run by uh david chisholm and it's drawn some incredible attention internationally because uh, across these three days that there's world premieres and Australian premieres of, of, of some seriously cool music with some seriously dense and um, academic music as, as well. And that's yeah. about as niche as it gets. Yeah. And the people who come to this and the people who support and more importantly, the people who perform at these sort of events really have committed the bulk of, of their performing lives to this sort of practice. Well, not only their performing lives, but their entire lives. Yeah, I mean, you wander around the NM corridors and people are here at all hours, you know, from when it opens to eight until when it closes at nine, you, you, you will see people dedicating the bulk of, of, of their waking existence, you know, dedicated to what we're doing here. Yeah, hours and hours and hours of practice. I think Biffin was really eye-opening for me because all of the music there, it can be quite unapproachable it can be quite scary to listen to and it's quite scary to play it's very scary (laughs) to play often because um that kind of music requires techniques which have been you know there's not only your classic technique of just blowing or bowing or um buzzing or hitting (laughs) nailed it (laughs) yep um that was the cuff ladies and gentlemen Um, so there's not only those, you know, normal techniques, but a lot of new music utilizes extended techniques, which again, take years and years of practice to perfect. And so it's just like another thing that you've got to go and spend time in the practice room, figuring out how to do and how to make it sound good. At Biffem, it was really, really cool to see these people just nailing all of this crazy, crazy music with skills, you know, well beyond many, many other musicians. Uh, what's cool about Biff and and, and and Anim and these other sort of super high level institutions is that people who are involved in them start to become even more specialized than they already are, right? I mean, you might decide that you're super into Dvorak and you're going to devote, you know, your life to studying the music of Dvorak and, and, and some people have devoted their lives to you know, figuring out quarter tone fingerings on the bass clarinet because that's what really, you know, floats their boat. Yeah, or like Roy Howard, who we talked to the other week, you know, devoted his life to studying foray or, you know, French piano music. 
Um, That's right. We've all got our own little niche, which becomes even more niche as, as we become more interested. Because in you get, yeah, you get, you get kind of addicted to it and you just keep going and, and you find out more and more information um, until you become like the expert. <laughs> That's right. It's kind of like an obsession in a way. Yeah. What was that quote? Oh, yeah. Um, let me just... So the, it, this kind of reminds me of um, just thinking about all of these people and how they've sort of dedicated their lives to just, you know, this obsession that they have with, with music, where, whether it be old music, new music. Red music, blue music. <laughs> yeah. Green eggs and ham. Yeah, that's know. what it is. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, Actually, no, it's, it's one fish. It's a, it's yeah, a well, he, story, but yeah. It's well, Dr. you know, Do- Dr. Seuss, he, yeah, was, Dr. Seuss yeah, yeah. he had an obsession with making weird drawings and stuff or stories. I think he was obsessed with children's literature, actually. But Well, yeah, I know. But, you know, his books are, like, filled with crazy animals and whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. We'll probably cut that bit out. Um, it re- all of this kind of reminds me of this quote, which is attributed to um, the poet and general uh, eccentric uh, Charles Bukowski. The quote goes something like, My dear, find what you love and let it kill you. Let it drain from you your all. Let it cling onto your back and weigh you down into eventual nothingness. Let it kill you and let it devour your remains. For all things will kill you, both slowly and fastly. But it's much better to be killed by a lover. Falsely yours, Henry Charles Bukowski. Damn, that was darker than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> But isn't that so? Relate I mean, that back to quarter tones. Off you go. Well, okay. Um, let's relate this back to yeah, quarter tones. Maybe you really like exploring notes that people don't play very often, such as quarter tones, the notes in between the notes. Mm. You know, or maybe you just really like trying to do authentic baroque performance, or you really just are obsessed with finding the perfect oboe sound. It's funny, like that sort of ties into this old romantic idea of the suffering artist, doesn't it? Like the, the way he's talking about his obsession is is almost like a punishment. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, you love this thing so much. But, <laughs> I mean, people always talk about how classical music will never, you know, never make you any money. That's the, something that I've heard from so many different people. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. That's probably a, a good place to segue into our conversation with this week's guest, the, the woman who often is touted as needing no introduction. But I reckon we should probably <laughs> give her one here. Yeah. Um, Simone Young, she was here the other week um, and we had a very nice chat with her. Uh, she was conducting a program of Schoenberg, Mahler, Rückert Lieder, um, songs by the poet Rückert and the Schoenberg uh, arrangement of Jams, G- Jams. <laughs> <laughs> of Brahms, G minor, piano quartet. I think I nailed that. Yeah, okay, good. Let's move on. Um, so she was here, and we had a really nice chat with her about her calling um, to be- becoming a conductor. And, and she is one of the world's most respected conductors of, of today. So you will hear from her uh, very shortly. Anyway, coming back to this calling thing. Luke, I mean, have you had sort of the, the eureka, eureka moment? Have you had the epiphany? The, the, the I want, to, this is, I have to do this. This is the only thing that I can do. Have you had that? I don't know, man. Like the, uh, there's been like a bunch of moments ac- across like a couple of things where like I've been super inspired. When like yeah. I saw Sonny Rollins, for instance, like a couple of years ago at the Melbourne Oh, wow. And that was fantastic. I mean, 
Was like, that at the, at the Jazz Festival? At the Jazz Festival down here, oh, 20, cool. 2012. And, you know, like he, he's so old, but he, he's, he's still got it. And he's sort of playing saxophone with one hand and fist bumping with the other. Like the energy he's got is like, I want to be that energetic and that super in love with music when I'm his age, right? Yeah. But then also there's things like, I remember my favorite recording for ages was this Berlin Phil recording of Pictures and Exhibition. And I'd listened to the old castle, you know, the saxophone solo, and just thinking that was the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. And that was kind of like its own epiphany where like I, I wanted to be able to make something that beautiful come out of my saxophone. How about you? Um, I don't know if I've had that eureka moment, that that moment. Are you sure? Because you got super fired up when you saw Kari Kriki last year. Yeah, actually, that was what I was going to mention. Um, in 2009, uh, the Finnish clarinetist Kari Kriku came to New Zealand and did a tour with uh, the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. And it, I believe it was a double sort of double concert tour. Um but I only saw one of the concerts, and that was in the Auckland Town Hall, and, the, and they and they did Magnus Lindbergh's clarinet concerto. I was sixteen years old. Um, I was not great at clarinet. Um, I mean, I could kind of play, and I I didn't really realize what clarinet could do until that concert, because I mean, Magnus Lindbergh clarinet concerto is just like a cinematic spectacular uh showy concerto where you just hear the full range of the clarinet blasting over the over the over the orchestra it's it's really really fantastic um and that you know that gave me those you know those chills down mm. down my spine that was that was so cool and to this day that's still one of my favorite recordings of um of like clarinet playing <laughs> it's really cool um so there's that and um i was luckily asked to join the Auckland Youth Orchestra because I hadn't played with them up until then. We did a performance of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, which is probably the most famed of his symphonies. That that just blew me away. Like playing all of those high Bs or As if you're talking concert pitch, um, at the end of it was just like, you know, I could I could throw myself into this. I could really feel like I was creating something that was powerful and and moving and had some sort of relevance to a particular you know time in 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 history. Um, that that was so cool to to be able to do that as at at kind of a young age. Those moments continue to roll on through. Like at the end of concerts, you can stand up and you can have a big smile on your face, and people are clapping, and it's it's great. You you feel like what you've just done what you've just performed is is has had an effect for the those people in the in that room as to like a purely like i am never going to consider any other path no i don't think anything that powerful has happened yet i think that's a conversation for another podcast honestly because that can go in a hundred different places but before we yeah. go there maybe we should have a listen to what to what simone has to say about this Okay, my name is Simone Young. I'm Sydney-born. Uh, I've been working as a conductor now for over 30 years. Started with Opera Australia, um, then had a spate of time in Germany um, and uh, was assisting Barenboim for a while at Bayreuth and in Berlin and started conducting, made all my big debuts in the early 90s, Covent Garden, Vienna State Opera, um, Berlin State Opera, Paris, um, Munich Philharmonic, all that sort of thing. Um, 
Then I ran the Bergen Philharmonic for a few years, parallel to running Opera Australia in Sydney. Someone needed to give me a globe. Bergen Philharmonic is in the far north of Norway, so there was a lot of travelling done. Um, and uh, then from 2005 to 2015, I was the intendant, which is basically sort of artistic director, music director, and also music director of the Philharmonic, and that was in Hamburg. Now I'm freelance again and loving life, but spending far too much time on airplanes and in airports. <laughs> so, Simone, why is it that you keep coming back to Annam? Well, I feel you, I have a relationship now with Annam because I've been coming back here regularly over the last few years. And I like what you do here in Annam, basically. I think it's a very unique institution in that um, it's full of essentially students who are on the brink or already are becoming young professionals. So it is specifically aimed at instrumental excellence and I find that very appealing. I also feel I have a kind of responsibility as an expat Australian to keep coming back and putting something back into the next generation. And um, I always have a good time when I'm here. That's another good reason to come back. Mm. We're, we're very grateful that you do keep coming back. Um, you used a word in rehearsal yesterday, uh, complaining at a higher level. There was the German word. Yeah, meckern auf hohem niveau. Uh, meckern is a wonderful word, uh, which just means sort of to be whinging about something. And if you meckern auf hohem niveau, it means you're delivering criticism, but you're already pretty pleased with where everything's got to. Um, so now it's about... Find, you know, finding down the, the, the details and really putting that extra layer on the top. I feel like for an educational institution, that must be reasonably high praise. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is, a, this is a very, very special place. And the people who have run it in the past, I mean, I have a close personal friendship with Brett Dean, who was director here. And then through Brett, I met his brother Paul, who was then the next director. And in fact, Nick Deutsch and I have worked together in Europe rather than here yeah. in Australia. So, you know, these are these are Australian uh, part of the Australian European group, clique, mafia, if you like to call it. And um, we're all aiming at the same thing: that our generation had to leave Australia to develop. And it's fantastic now to see an elite institution of this kind where Australian musicians can actually progress direct from here to one of the major orchestras in Australia. Mm. Um, I'm still a great believer in European experience. I think that just enriches everybody, whether they're a musician or a, or a lawyer or a doctor or, or a mechanic. I mean, it's, it's seeing how the rest of the world lives is exciting. Mm. But I don't believe... I think the education and the development you're getting here is certainly... Uh, as good or better than you're going to get at any of the elite institutions in Europe now. Um, Simone, this week we're talking a little bit about uh, what we call the calling or sort of your call to arms, I guess, as to why you became a, a music uh, a conductor. Um, was there a eureka moment where where that sort of just clicked for you? Uh Yes, there was, but it wasn't actually until I was well and truly doing it. Right. I mean, I come from a non-musical family. I was not exposed to musical life. Um, I didn't actually know that kind of normal people could become conductors. I thought that was, you know, 
the, the, them. That's, yeah. that's very different. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't until I was doing it, I joined Opera Australia as a repetiteur, which is a conductor's assistant, if you like. In fact, that's the title they have in America, the same job. Yeah. You, as a repetiteur, you basically replace the orchestra in the rehearsals and the weeks of staging rehearsals and things. And invariably you get an opportunity sooner or later because the conductor's off sick and the next in line plays the piano and you are in charge of the rehearsal. Um, and you do get a lot of experience being a repetitor, watching good conductors and watching not so good conductors. And I was lucky. I was working at a time when Charlie McCarris was a regular guest to Opera Australia. Carla Felice Cilario was there for three or four months a year doing all the Italian repertoire. Stuart Challenger, mm. unforgettable, was had the same kind of weird hybrid background that I did, pianist, composer, a university dropout, um, not f- ticking any of the boxes and yet with a mind that just wanted to encompass everything and a huge curiosity for music. He recognised in me a kindred spirit and then I worked closely with him. So yes, I was a repetitor at a great time in opera's history in Australia mm. and it was Stuart who said go to Germany and it's kind of more or less where I've been for the last 30 years. And, and was Germany where you had that moment, that moment of I, ha- I have to do this? Uh, well that moment happened about three times. The first time was when I stepped in in Sydney in 1985. I was 24 years old, it was a performance of the Mikado, Opera mm. Australia, no rehearsal, phone call at two o'clock, you're on. <laughs> Um, and, you know, absolute terror, a sense of, God, I remember waiting before I went into the pit thinking, I've got my passport in my handbag and my credit card. (laughs) I could just get out of here real fast. Um, but then doing the performance and finding that those, those terror nerves vanished the moment I gave the upbeat, that my total focus was on what I was doing. I was completely, I was hearing everything as though every single instrument had a direct feed to my ears. I was supporting the singers. I was in my element. I felt completely at home. And that was that was the first aha moment. Mm. Maybe this is really what I should be doing. Mm. The second aha moment came a few years later when I was in Germany. I had to take one step back. I was already a bit of a big fish here in Australia when I left and I took one step back because in Germany... I was an Australian. What they they understand classical culture out there. We thought they're just you know good swimmers, um, <laughs> or and I was a woman. There were no women doing what I did. None, absolutely none. There weren't even any women repetiteurs. <laughs> um, there were no women concertmasters. We're talking 1986. I first went there, and the world was a very different place. I was also 25 years old when I got there. In those days in Germany, if you were 25, you were still at uni, till you were about 28 or so. They, they did these incredibly long, drawn-out degrees. So I was too young, I was the wrong gender, I came from the wrong country, and I spoke poor German. I thought, well, there's not much I can do about the first three, but the fourth I can do is something, so I set out to learn to speak really good German. And started conducting the Kinderopern, the children's operas and things, and it was when I did, at, also at the last minute, and this was a few years later, 1991, um, where I was already Barenboim's assistant in Bayreuth, and this was really what I was going to do, but I didn't know whether it was going to happen. Mm. And I stepped in at short notice to conduct the Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk, Shostakovich, mm. in Cologne. 
and it was a huge success and it's this massive apparatus you know an orchestra of about 95 and 150 people on stage and this huge apparatus and I was just it was I I found my instrument my instrument is the orchestra and that was the next aha moment um and yeah that was that was the big one where I thought yes this is where I belong and I'm just going to completely ignore anybody who says I shouldn't be here. Would you say that having those kind of aha moments, is that really a necessity to, to be successful in this business? Well, it depends how you define successful. Mm. I mean, I think you have to have those aha moments if you are going to commit a lifetime to this profession because it is a calling, it is an obsession, it verges on being an illness. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it is not an easy way of life. I don't think I've actually had a holiday in about 17 years because you just don't take days off. If you have a clear day, that's great. That means you can get six or seven hours study done and that feels like a holiday. Yeah, so, yes, it is, conducting is, a, is an obsession if you want to do it really, really well. Now, those of us who are completely obsessed by it um, we often get heavily criticized in being about being over ambitious and that sort of thing but the ambition is simply I don't think it's ambition I think it's drive to serve the works the masterpieces that we're privileged to call into life in performance it's the the drive to serve those as best as we possibly can which means constantly striving yourself to be better and constantly striving to be working with better musicians and in in better acoustics and with better facilities and all of that Mm. and that's where the drive comes then to try to put something back into the next generation because I mean the the glory of being a conductor is that you see two or even three generations of musicians go through orchestras certainly three generations of singers because they have much shorter careers whereas conductors we we drop on the on the podium you know we don't actually ever stop (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I think you need the aha moments and, and then to make that decision, this is it. Simone, thank you so much for coming in. It's been nice chatting with you and we have a little work ahead of us this afternoon. We do, looking forward <laughs> to that. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. So, this week in the studio with us. For the Minute of Mimicry, we have exactly, statistically, 25% of the percussion department and about 75% of the muscle mass. Mr. James Townsend, um, take it away. Just for fresh listeners, quick reminder, 30 seconds of our guests, followed by 30 seconds of myself and Kenny attempting to replicate what they play on two clarinets at the same time. Well, there's a first time for everything, I guess. Um, Here we go.
Yeah, okay. That worked, right? That's yeah. just perfect. So, James, tell us about you. Uh, I'm from New South Wales. I'm from a small country town called Scone, population about 3,000. Called Scone, did you say? Scone, uh, spelt scone. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say. Did, did you used to jam a lot? Oh, yeah. Were you the cream of the crop? <laughs> I can't think of any return puns. <laughs> I've heard them all. I, I think that's about as many as you can get out of scones, isn't it? <laughs> All right, so why are you here? Why are you at NM? Uh, I came to NM because I finished university and uh, wanted to get out of Sydney, basically. Yeah, that's a good as reason as any. What was wrong with Sydney? Uh, nothing wrong with it. I just didn't really have any work and I didn't want to move back to the farm. And you've had some work down here, as I understand it. Yes, uh, MSOOV. So the two uh, major professional orchestras. Tell us about that journey, I guess. Uh, I started drum kit when I was in grade two, uh, which meant I'm seven, I was seven years old, and I progressed through high school just playing rock bands and learning to read uh, music, just uh, rhythm basically. And then uh, during high school, I attended some music camps and stuff, and decided I wanted to get into percussion. So I started learning percussion in about grade eleven, about. 16, 17. Did you make a conscious decision to stop playing drums and become a percussionist? Uh, not until university. Uh, that was more of a time thing because I had to catch up basically to everyone else who was playing mallets and reading uh, clefs and not just rhythm. Because, I mean, you you would have enjoyed your time on the drum kit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. But the, the scene wasn't that big. Like, there's, there's not the venues there were 20 or 30 years ago and stuff where there is opportunities for rock bands to get out there. So this week we're talking about the calling, the idea of the epiphany where you decide all of a sudden this is what I'm going to do with my life. Have you had a moment like that either in the orchestra or in, in study or in lessons or it's even in, with chats of fellow musicians over a beer about why you have chosen this path? Um, kind of. I started university playing percussion and like I was having a lot of fun and I was ramping up the practice. And then one day I, I went to an SSO concert. Uh, it was the 40th anniversary of the Opera House being open and they played the first program they did there, which was Wagner songs as well as they played the Funeral March from Siegfried. And that just blew me away. I was sitting, I got comps off one of the teachers and I was sitting directly behind the percussion section and they had it was eight percussionists and three principals like two of them were ex-principals and the sound they were making and stuff was huge and if you know the opera that that section in it is just overwhelming like not just percussion but brass and the sound was huge Simone Young was conducting it and I, I couldn't sleep that night I was too like wired up and I decided that's what I want to do one day so that's awesome. You couldn't even, like, you just couldn't stop thinking about how much you wanted to be a percussionist. Pretty much. Well, playing that group in that orchestra, mm. like, it was just, yeah, it was amazing. And then also when I was my last year at uni, in my last recital, I had some friends from college who weren't musos. They were engineering students and physios and stuff, and they came and watched the last recital. And one of my, like, best friends from there, I was playing marimba piece. And I chatted to him after the concert and he was like, like emotionally like distraught because I was, I played like a pretty solemn piece and um, 
it, it like reaffirmed that how much you can like uh, transfer emotionally to people with your playing. Yeah, um, it can which, change people, right? Yeah, like that because he wasn't a classical music fan. Like he he just listens to a lot of rock and roll and stuff, and came and checked it out. And it goes to show it doesn't matter what you're into, you can touch people. Um, yeah, through your music. Um, why did you play the drums? Like, why the drums? I want to pick up girls when I was seven yes, years old. <laughs> <laughs> I've not ever put a filter on this. It's the, it's the truth. You get the truth. Um, and yeah, I watched like I my the first album I bought was uh, Lincoln Park or something, and it had a DVD in it. And yeah, there was just like people going wild. For the drummer, so I thought that was yeah, pretty give the drummer some. Yeah, pretty good gig. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any favorite drummers? Uh, probably like Tommy Lee and stuff. He's not like the most technically proficient guy, but like just presence and just yeah, he'll play the simplest beat, but it'll just be rock steady, like and cool because he's like covered in tats and stuff. Do you see a lot of the a lot of the sort of the, the experience and the the performance fine-tuning that we get to, to really bring our performance game onto the stage and to, like, give a really great performance. Is that something that you see kind of parallels in, in like, rock music and in your, like, idol drummers? Mm. Yeah, well, you can see, like, that... I mean, presence is a big thing. Uh, I mean, we're doing, like, acting class tomorrow and stuff. And it's transforming people in a different way, but it's still that connection um i mean you're not having screaming women in the front row in south melbourne town hall but (laughs) not with that attitude (laughs) (laughs) but um like it's it's the same kind of thing i mean arts art profound (laughs) profound (laughs) it reminds me of this joke right yeah where um, someone goes up and gives um, you know Tommy Lee a, a, a letter and says you know to the best drummer in the world, Tommy Lee goes oh that that can't possibly be me and he goes and finds Dave Grohl and gives Dave Grohl the, 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 the letter and it says to the best drummer in the world and Dave Grohl goes oh that can't possibly be me and sort of goes and gives it to Tony Williams and Tony Williams is like oh no that, that, that can't possibly be me gives it to Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich goes oh yeah yeah I'm the best drummer in the world opens up the letter and says dear Ringo. No, God. <laughs> anyway, this <laughs> that's probably enough of that. James, thank you very much for dropping by. All right, thank you. Okay, so um, Luke Carbon, what's coming up at Annan? Don't say my recital because that's going to be. Oh, gone. your recitals tomorrow! No, no, no. But by the time everyone listens to this, it's going to have been two weeks ago. Yeah, how but, was it? You know, that's fine. Uh. I'm confused now. How can I... S- <laughs> Future... Moving hastily along. Do you want to talk about the pianist concert? So this is October 8th. Yeah, October 8th, in the also in the South Melbourne Town Hall, we've got a project with the NM piano uh, section, the piano department. department yeah, yeah not that, section. Yeah, nice one. Good. <laughs> um, and what they're doing is um, a piece by uh, Ant, Ant Heil, Ant Hill? I don't know. Ant, Ant Heil? Uh, A-N-T. Called Ballet Mechanique. Um, and they're also doing the two, I think the two piano arrangement of uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. The piano department's been on fire this year and I think this is probably the one. Yeah, I think so. Did, did they call the fire uh, department? Very good. Anyway, you should come to this gig. Um, they're also doing Hinesterra, 
Cantata para America Magica. The details of all these gigs can be found at the Anna website, which is um, annum.com.au, I believe. That is correct. Um, and there's one more gig that we were just going to mention quickly. Uh, yeah, so dotted through October, there's a bunch of concerts uh, that make up our International Woodwinds Project. Yes. So, um, um, uh, a festival, if you will. It, it is a sort of festival of woodwinds, isn't it? So we're going to have a two weeks of... Um, there's going to be four concerts in total, I believe. The first two concerts are sort of similar. One of them's at M Pavilion. And then the rest of them, I believe, are here. Yeah, they're all here. So the 13th, 14th, 18th, and 20th of October, um, our artistic director, the oboist uh, Nick Deutsch, will be here. Um, uh, David Thomas, so the clarinet faculty, and some international guests. Um, and like I said, jump on the Anum website and, and, and check out um, what's happening on the 14th and 18th and the 20th. Yep. There's, there's some stuff that's well worth hearing. Yeah, some really, really, really cool woodwind music. I know it sounds like oxymoronic, but like cool woodwind music. I promise you. Trust me, I play the clarinet. And that's what's coming up at Anum. Well, that brings us pretty much to the end of this week's episode. Completely to the end of it, I believe. Well, there's the outro. Okay. Well, let's do the outro. Um, My name is Luke Carbon. And I'm Kenny Keppel. (laughs) See you next time. Bye.